everyone. Welcome to Manufacturing Hub with me, Dave, and this guy up here, Vlad. We're talking about IIoT, and we've got Ira Sharp um, as our guest this week. Ira, welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. Ah, it's so great. Thanks for having me. I know it's been a little bit long time, you know, in the waiting to get here, but it's so great to be here. And I agree. Solus PLC, great YouTube channel. Like, subscribe, get it done. Totally on board with that. So okay. thanks for having me, guys. Really appreciate it. No, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I do want to apologize. We started the show a little bit late. Uh, Tim Wilborn actually messaged me asking if the show was still going live. <laughs> Completely my fault. It wasn't Dave, it wasn't Ira, it was me. Uh, but now that we've got that out of the way, thank you so much for joining us, Ira. I think it's going to be a really good continuation from the last week's conversation we had. And before we dive into the technical aspects of IIoT and explore the topic a little bit more, I know that me and you talked off stream quite a bit, so I know your background, but I want you to maybe introduce yourself and tell us, I would say from the beginning, how did you get into industrial automation? What have you done since that entry point and what are you doing today? All right. Yeah. So how far back should I go? Should it be my mom and dad? Florida? No, no, we won't go back <laughs> that far. So, um, yeah. So I've been in industrial automation now. It'll be 17 years coming up in November. It's hard to believe it's been that long. And the entire time that I've been in industrial automation has actually been at Phoenix Contact. And uh, it's been a great ride. Um, started with Phoenix Contact um, out the gate as a, as a wireless product specialist. And, uh, and what that really allowed me to do, or I guess maybe taking a step back from there, what gave me the opportunity to to get to Phoenix Contact is I am a degreed engineer. I'm a double E, um, Penn State, and uh, here in Pennsylvania, where we're located. And I remember when I went through school, I focused on control systems. I focused on really microprocessor type control systems and board level components. And, and I had aspirations to be an embedded systems engineer and do coding. So what makes sense to get out of school and go get a job in marketing at an industrial company? Because it's almost the same thing. It's not the same thing. But um, I did sales before that in retail sales and these kind of things. So, so I do enjoy talking to people, always enjoy doing that kind of thing. And, and, and I found my way to Phoenix Contact and there was a great opportunity locally. And, uh, and as a wireless product specialist, uh, I handled our, uh, our basically our, our 900 megahertz Wi-Fi products, UHF products, cellular communications as it came out, did a lot of research on the topics. But one of those coolest things I got to do was really travel around the country and see lots of different kinds of applications. And as a company, Phoenix is pretty widespread in the industry served. So saw things like water, wastewater, oil and gas, uh, pharmaceutical, but then also uh, material handling and, and, and lots of different OEM machine builder and factory automation kind of applications. And they all had very different needs. And in the wireless standpoint, it was, it was all different as well. And then uh, that went well. And I had a series of management uh, positions here at Phoenix as well, always in the automation space, handling different aspects of the business. And then ultimately, I landed where I am today as the director of marketing for all of the automation products in the US market for, uh, for Phoenix Contact. And I have an awesome team, so happy to have a great team um, to really focus in on particular topics, not only regionally and across the country, but then in the back office, handling things like cybersecurity, safety, unmanaged, managed Ethernet switches, and on and on and on. And I know you've had the chance to meet some of my, my team members, Vlad, and uh, very blessed to, to have such a great team. 
I want to ask you a question, Ira, on your beginning. So going directly into sales from a double E, uh, you know, looking back at, um, you know, how your career developed, do you think it would have been maybe more beneficial to have like a technical role at the beginning? Do you think it made sense for you to go directly into sales? I'm curious, you know, on that dynamic, because I think a lot of people listening to our show, at least, have a more, I would say, like technical career. But what is your perspective on early on going into sales versus the technical uh, track? Yeah, so it's it's a it's a good question. I went to marketing, not sales. Slightly different, sorry. You know, slight, slight, slightly wider audience. A um, little little different. Um, but but I will say that I cheated because um, even though I became the wireless product specialist, I'm a marketing guy. So what that meant is I developed the marketing collateral, the sales positioning, all those kind of things. But you know, really what I internalized with that was, so taking it from a technical point of view, because I'm an uber technical guy. And when it comes to that kind of thing, it was, it wasn't, hey, just what, let's make this product great. And let's, let's get that message out. It's, hey, why would I care about this product? And why would I use this product? And, and really look at it from an engineering mindset, which then ultimately really helped me create my positioning. And then the other thing that I, that I did, and you'll find this with a lot of the staff at, at Phoenix, um, and, and I think in, and it's something that could be considered by others in your audience, maybe that are, are looking at careers and where they can go, is you can be an engineer in a sales position. And, and like what I did was when I first joined is I, I went deep in the tech, like deep in okay. the tech. I, I could tell you how OFDM worked and um, frequency modulation worked within wireless communications. Did I need to know that from a marketing perspective? Absolutely not. But what happened was, you know, I'm a 24, 25 year old running around the country talking to control systems engineers that have been in the industry for 25 years, thinking in their head, why am I going to listen to this kid talking to me about oil and gas? Well, when you can talk about it, not only the product and the value of what it can provide to an application, but also why that is from a technology perspective, it adds credibility and it really helps you gain more confidence and gain more information about different kinds of applications and things. So, you know, would it have helped to be in a, in a technical role? I think so, but it's certainly not a showstopper to go directly into sales, but I think it depends on how you approach it and, and really uh, making sure you're getting into a company that will allow you to approach it in that way. So I was able to scratch the technical itch while being able to um, do my sales and marketing thing at the same time. So it's, it's, been, a, it's been a good, good connection and a good company. Yeah, I think it makes sense. And I, I can only assume that they had some kind of a, a program that allowed you to absorb or get up to speed with the technology before maybe you were put in front of the customers on like week one, right? There was a structure and probably some thought in your boss's head at the time on how we can bring you up to speed so that you know the technology well enough uh, to be able to present. But no, that's, yeah. that's, that's really cool. I, I think, uh, again, if I may put like a retrospective from my standpoint, I think, you know, sales and marketing plays a very important role and especially not only I would say like on the product side, but also how you position yourself, I think, as an individual, how you grow within a company, how you uh, not only understand, you know, the technical aspects, but as you said, how are you going to use this product in the field and how you can communicate? Again, it could be technical features, but you need to truly um be able to, again, like explain it to someone who may not have the same level of understanding as you. So it's a very critical role in my eyes. But Ira, when you were just getting started, was the term IIoT readily used? Or when was the first time, you know, that IIoT 
was starting to boom uh, in your conversations? Yeah, so um, no, it was not used when I first started. So I'm 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 old, I guess. Um, and uh, it was it was you know quite a few years after that. Now I would I've done IoT projects before they were called IoT projects, or I'd done IO, I, IoT projects before they were IoT projects. Um, and I had been looking at the the type of technology and these kind of things even back in school when I was in college. Um, from from an IoT perspective, some of my first research and and actually right out of school, I guess I'm not completely telling the truth. I actually did start a company directly out of school. Um, didn't wasn't successful. It was a little little company. I did some research and 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 developed the product for retail, where I had a lot of experience before. It was a digital price tag, used wireless communications, talked to the back end database for pricing and 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 really all the the details of uh, for signage. So you would have 100% price integrity in a store. You see these tags at like Kohl's and, and Best Buy's now, the little like e-ink displays. That was the same type of thing that, that I had worked on way back when. Um, I just ran out of money and trying to make the company because it's a lot more expensive than I thought. But IoT, you know, looking way, way back, now it was it was more SCADA, but it is, is primarily what people looked at. But looking forward to where we were now, I think there was this general trend of first more of the big data, like, hey, let's collect lots of stuff. And then it became more of a IoT and not only, okay, we've collected stuff, we've collected data. Now, how can we use this data and really apply it to make things better or improve operations, have better ROI on whatever we're trying to do? And I would say that's probably in the last decade or so is, is where you really started to see that spin up. And then even more recently, you know, where it's really starting to be more applied. I'm getting out of the more of the science fair type projects to things that are actually really happening. And so let me ask you this in terms of, or... I would say when the question or an IoT project is brought up, what is, I would say, like the core set of technologies that immediately resonates with you? Is it the data? Is it, you know, cloud native? Is it AI machine learning? Is it, you know, hardware sensors that are almost always prevalent in traditional IoT? Like, what are your thoughts on, you know, the core components that, would make you say this is an IIoT project? Yeah, so one of the core things that, that really make me think of what makes a good IIoT project is less to do about any of the hardware pieces or even the software pieces, and it's more of the mentality of what's trying to be accomplished. I mean, certainly you can do a, a sensor development or, or a sensor deployment and collect vibration data or look at temperatures, and, and you can start to apply that, but you know, to, to really do it and do it effectively, it really should start with some sort of vision and what you're looking to accomplish. And some of the big trends are things like sustainability or, you know, reducing energy and, and having zero emissions and, and these kind of things. And those are all, they're buzzwords, yeah, but, but the real reasons of why you would apply a variety of sensors, a variety of softwares, a variety of things to not only collect the data, but then use the data to figure out how you can improve your operations. So, you know, um, in my head, that those are the things that come to play. Now, if you do say, well, hey, uh, that's a, it's a bit of a cop-out IRA, you know, let's like dig a little deeper, let's talk a little tech, you know, let's, let's see what's going on. I mean, you need sensor data. Now, the sensor data doesn't have to be connected directly to your IoT platform. It, should, it shouldn't be disruptive. You should be able to utilize what's already there. It should be additive to whatever manufacturing or process you're doing, and you should be able to collect that data. 
And, and that may require gateways or, or whatever it is because you're going into a brownfield, something that exists and you're adding something in to collect that data. Then once you've collected that data, um, there's lots of different ways you can call this, but I call it normalizing the data. Now, you know, that, that can mean lots of different things to lots of different people, but you normalize the data, you get it to a central place. So ultimately, then you can use that data across multiple parts of the manufacturing facility to, to, to improve operations. And, and to do that, uh, common protocols would be like an MQTT or OPC UA, and you need gateways that support that, but then also support the downstream communications, whether it be direct wiring to IO or Modbus, Ethernet IP, Profinet, Ethercat, you know, the, the industrial protocols that are downstream. So collect that data, normalize the data, use the data, and then ultimately you're, you're getting more towards having a complete transformational system. Dave, what are your thoughts? I want you to perhaps like jump in as well. Absolutely. No. So I, I think Ira brought up some very good points about it being additive. Um, as we've discussed with, with a number of people, kind of one of the reoccurring questions we get, Ira, is where does IIoT stand compared to Industry 4.0 or digital transformation? Is IIoT additive to those initiatives or, or does it stand alone? How do you normally have those conversations with your, with your customers? Yeah, so it, it is a, that's an interesting topic. And probably admittedly and probably to some people's um, frustration, I, I maybe use the terms a little too interchangeably than I should. But, um, you know, IIoT would be more of an, an isolated system, I guess. Digital transformation would be a complete con or transformational shift of a company. And it's really where I see people should be looking because IIoT projects are great and they can provide good transformational pieces of an individual business. But without a grander vision of what you're trying to accomplish and quite frankly, buy in through the organization, it makes it hard to really make that sustainable to really move forward to take a company to the next level. And then Industry 4.0 is really driven out of Europe, um, and and really uh, it's it's really a, a look at how to do things um, from a, a complete manufacturing perspective to have things like digital twins and 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 these these type of things. But it's it's really a specific set of directives that uh, to really define if something is uh, Industry 4.0. So in my mind, I'm typically talking about digital transformation and the bigger topic. Um, although I'm typically implementing or having detailed conversations about more of an IIoT project, potentially uh, Industry 4.0. We have a question in the comments, Ira, that's interesting. And we're going to have, I guess, a deeper discussion on what we see in the future. But uh, Carol is asking, what are you seeing in IoT that uh, you're excited about that would have the greatest impact on your work at Phoenix Contact. So is there maybe like a core technology that you're seeing is changing how we're going to implement these IoT projects or going to have like an impact maybe on some of the products that you guys are going to bring out? Like what's what are your thoughts on like a core technology? Yeah, so one of the things that I find that's so exciting about this space is really the opening up of systems that may have been so closed off that they were untouchable. Now, I, I say that from, of course, the Phoenix Contact perspective and us wanting to sell more stuff there, but it's not just that. Like, it's it's truly um, the ability to get more data, to utilize that data to make systems more efficient and, and, and productive. And and I think uh, another really important part of that, and uh, if, if you know me, there's two big topics that I love to talk about, and they, they, they kind of go together, although they are different. And that's, uh, there's the IoT piece, digital transformation piece, but then the open automation piece. 
And, and I think there's a lot more with the getting of data to utilizing that data to, to make things different. I think the other piece of that that comes along is this different way of thinking can also allow people to, to think about, well, hey, maybe open automation um, is, is another key thing. And when I say open automation, it's, it's really a decoupling of hardware and software. Certainly, they can be combined. There's lots of great systems out there. It's what we live in today. There's a box, and it's really nice to be inside the box because everything works. But there is an element of if you're always inside the box that you aren't necessarily progressing at the same rate that the overall industry could progress if you looked outside the box. And that's where open automation, I think, can come into play where you can look at, well, hey, instead of only doing things in ladder or only doing things using 611.31 various languages, what if I could integrate open source? What if I could integrate high-level language? Uh, the, the, the engineers today are completely different than the engineers uh, two decades ago, three decades ago, and, and what they understand, what they know. I have four kids of my own. All of them can do some level of logic and coding, right? And uh, they're all very young. You, you didn't have that decades ago. So you have people that are able to program and, and, and do things in a different way today than, than they could in the past. And why not use that in manufacturing lines to make things more productive and efficient? And that's a, that's a very interesting point. I think we had a conversation last week of, uh, I guess, of similar nature where Rob pointed out that there's a very small or, you know, a very small subset of programmers that understands ladder logic really well. And it's almost, I wouldn't say like a, not necessarily a dying breed of people, but it's a very niche application where if you bring somebody right now outside of software, it takes them a really long time to get up to speed to be able to work with these systems. So I, I personally think there's going to be, obviously there will be some adoption curve that's going to have to take place in automation and it's going to take, I think, years, if not a decade but I certainly think that we will remerge, so to speak, with more traditional like IT and software development teams. And I think we're seeing that even today, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and maybe a quick story on that type of topic. So it's been a few years now, but um, right as we were getting ready to launch PLC Next um, back in like 2018, I hired an intern. And, and, uh, and in the, this intern was a computer science guy. And I uh, never had him on my team before. Uh, he didn't know anything about industrial automation at all. He was a computer science guy. And I brought him in and I had him program on a, um, uh, a 611.31 platform. And I asked him to turn off and on some lights. Um, pretty simple. Push or Take a push button in and turn off and on some lights. Didn't give him any instruction. Gave him the programming environment. And I said, go. And it took him a couple of days to figure out how to write the ladder to get it done. Then we gave him PLC next and we said, go. And he went on and now he didn't use the engineering environment at all. You can use an engineering environment and do it in the same way that he did, but he actually wrote the whole, wrote the whole thing in Python and had it done in a day. Um, it just, just really going after it. And I'm not saying that industrial manufacturing is going to switch on that and everything's going to be written in Python. That's not the point. My point is that there are people that are graduating and there's, there's the ability to do things in a different way. And it needs to be coupled because there's a whole maintenance problem that comes along with some of this um, using of this open source code. And these other, it needs to be considered. But the point is that you don't have to start from scratch every single time. And there are different ways to think and, and approach a common problem in a different way to get better results in the future. But you have to think down the line and how that will be 
the whole way through the life cycle of the system or machine or whatever else. But it was really eye-opening to me of someone that helped create that message to really see it play out like exactly the way it was. And that went on to get connected to the cloud and these other things. We did it in both ways, you know, with both platforms. And it was, it was great to see it evolve. No, absolutely. I would, again, I would completely agree. I think there's obvious pushbacks, which I'm sure you've heard many, many times. You know, I have guys that don't understand the traditional programming, only understand ladder logic. And mm-hmm. sure, there's maybe some very specific applications where it's, you know, high speed motion control that has been developed in ladder and function blocks. Sure, maybe those applications, but usually they're far and few in between. And I think at the end of the day, it makes it the advantage, the advantages supersede the disadvantages, so to speak. You know what I mean? There's a lot more, I think, to gain from, from going that route. But again, uh, manufacturing is a somewhat of a slow moving industry. And hopefully, you know, they're not necessarily maybe putting all of their eggs in one basket by ripping out all the systems and replacing them tomorrow, but they're looking at gradually. And I, and I know that large companies have those R&D centers. They're looking at different devices. They're looking at different ways to do things. They're hiring, again, engineers with backgrounds in computer science who are not necessarily industrial automation engineers who are driving these different initiatives. But I would, I would completely agree. What have you seen, uh, Dave, maybe your thoughts on, on the matter as well? No, no, I would agree. And I think Ira's, uh, Ira's example uh, was really good. Um, and kind of back to, to Rob's comments last week, I think he said something like one one hundredth or one one thousandth of the people probably in the world even know that ladder logic exists. And sometimes we as an industry get in this kind of cyclical argument of it has to be ladder or it has to be something else. And Maybe the folks who are currently, you know, the maintenance people to Iris Point don't understand anything uh, beyond ladder. Maybe they don't even understand, you know, ladder in, in particular. I think we many times kind of get into that cyclical argument of it has to be ladder versus it, has to, it can't be ladder or it should be something else or it could be any of the other uh, programming languages. And I think if we take kind of a step back and realize that virtually no one on planet Earth in the grand scheme of things, knows what ladder is, much less programs in ladder, it kind of gives us a, a different perspective, um, very much to kind of Ira's point. And Ira kind of that, your point made me, you know, bring up another thought, right? So we kind of entitled this IIoT Challenges and Opportunities. Can you, so maybe that the challenges and opportunities very much parallel what you guys have been doing with, with PLC Next, right? Can you kind of share what some of the challenges of developing this next generation platform look like and what you think the opportunities look like in the future for PLC Next or for IIoT in general? Yeah, well, I mean, we'll take a step back and look at it just whole, whole market independent. So, you know, look at look at IIoT and there's, there's massive challenges. Like you even started off with a little bit of it, Vlad, and, uh, and I, I know you specifically asked about the differences, but the reason you asked about the differences between, you know, or when did IoT start or when did you start hearing about it is, look, you know, there's there's a solid argument of, hey, we've always done this. So is it even really a thing? You know, is it, it it's time. always, yep. yeah, yeah. And and it, it, there, there's validity to that. So, so I would say that's a challenge. Now, I would challenge that and say, I mean, yes, there is an element of collecting data and utilizing that data in operation. That's, that's what we've always done. But taking it to the next level to harmonize data, 
utilize it to improve operations, it, it, I think is, is key. So, so it's, it's a mindset shift. It's not a technical problem. It's not only a technical problem. It's not only a, a you know, product problem or anything like this. It is a mental shift, I think, of, an, of a company or organization to really go down this road to do a complete digital transformation and really embrace this. And I think a good example of that is someone like a Tesla. And I know that's a high-level example and you know, it may be out of, out of reach for, for what a lot of companies are dealing with, but I think they did something really interesting and it's also a consumer product. But if you look at what they did, at the end of the day, Tesla came into a very closed industry of the automotive industry. They created a new type of vehicle. And then, but, but even beyond that, they, they created something that is a sophisticated machine that they sell. And the thing that makes it so interesting to me isn't the sophisticated machine. It's that these are all connected back to home base and that machine gets better over time. And one of the reasons the machine gets better over time is because they're able to collect mass amounts of data from all of the machines to be able to further improve them overall to get better over and over and over again. So whether you're an OEM in this industrial industry and, and looking at what you're doing and you're producing a machine out there, um, you know, how, how could you make it better? Does any, and, and there's lots of restrictions to that of, well, if I sell my machine to Frito-Lay, they're not going to want to give me my data. Well, maybe they won't if there's no value in it for them. But if there's value in it for them, i.e. their machine gets more productive over time, or they can get some metrics, or they can get an idea of when they need to maintain the machine, or whatever these other things are, plus the OEM can get more information about their machine, well, this can all improve over time. So, so there's, there's, I think I'm hopefully answering both questions there. What are some of the challenges? But what are some of the opportunities? I see that as a massive opportunity in like the OEM market. And then if you look at the end user market, um, someone that's the Frito-Lay or the, the GM or the automotive plant that's actually utilizing this, um, there's massive opportunity to uh, not only make your bottom line, your, your costs lower by producing and, and making things more efficient, so you increase your profitability, but then there's a, there's a big marketing, because I'm a marketing guy, advantage there, because that's when you can look at the sustainability, the you know, efficiency aspects, and all these other things that you can put out to say, hey, we are doing things in a better and more effective way than we did previously, whether that be from an energy or a materials or a scrap or even a personnel standpoint to make more meaningful work. So there's a ton of advantages, both from a OEM type of application as well as, a, as an end user application. At least that's my view on it. No, I, w- I would, I definitely agree. You know, one thing that I do want to add on that, because I hear that argument a lot, right? Like we've always collected data or we always kind of monitored operations, but I think we've never done it at the scale and at the efficiency level that we see today, right? And there's so many different tools. Again, we can talk about the tools on the, the cloud side or on, on, on-prem, whatever, but to analyze the data and be able to synthesize something that makes sense for our operation, I don't think it's ever been done at the scale that we're seeing today, right? So right. sure, we were able to connect sensors and maybe show them on a SCADA application, even with some historians, you know, look at maybe some trends. But right now we're able to, I think, process, analyze, and then spit out an answer that makes more sense than just a trend line of like a temperature or a pressure, or again, when something was turned on and turned off. So I think there's a lot of, um, I would say, again, like when there's that saying that comes in, there's a lot of maybe misunderstanding of where we are at and the technology how it has truly evolved uh, and what it's capable of. But sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, I mean, so one of the things I always like to, your audience, 
is, is largely industrial. So I think everybody gets it, but it, I always like to relate it to something that's not in our industry, just to kind of give that, that vanilla look as well. So one of the studies I actually read, and I think this was NFL with AWS, um, they did something pretty cool where they collected data from collisions, from, from hits in NFL. And they did this over a series of years to really effectively prove that you know, people that have concussions have long-term effects people that get concussions playing in the NFL have long-term effects, health effects by doing this. And, and what does that look like? So, you know, what they were able to do is collect data, not only during the game, but then post the game of, of different people to see what kind of effects it had. And you don't know in the beginning, that early stage of collecting that data, where you're going to go. You just got to collect the data. Then you have to apply the data, look at the data later on to see the correlations. And what that resulted in is a high correlation of concussions and long-term health effects. And that's when you started the, the role changes where you couldn't have the, the collisions that you have today. Now, you can argue if that's a good thing or a bad thing in the NFL, but despite that, you know, it happened from data. And now there's the idea of, well, we can make a digital athlete and you can help training regiments and all these other things by collecting data. And there's literally operations now where you can collect like three terabytes of data a practice from some of these um, athletes. Now, what does that mean today? Nothing. But what does it mean in the future? We don't know. Again, mm -hmm. it's not in our industry, but it's representative of the same types of things you could find in our industry. It's it's where can you go from here looking at data science and these kind of things. That's what That's what really interests me about this subject. Yeah, that's a really interesting example. I I guess I, I've read that there was some data collected, but obviously I, I don't know what the conclusion was. And I think there were some like lawsuits in the past, right, over the trying to prove if the collisions in the NFL did in fact cause uh, problems. We don't need to get into the NFL yeah, debate. I was just using it as a simple yeah, example. Yeah. <laughs> But I do want to I want to tie in that um, I guess like example and maybe parallel to IoT. We have a question from Scott McNeil. So he's asking, "What's your opinion of wireless integration as it becomes more and more common with industrial and manufacturing environments with IoT or any other applications?" And so the parallel, I guess, is that the sensors they probably used on athletes were all wireless, and I would say that's more like IoT application. You know, you also see this now on. A lot of the buses, any like public applications, you know, where you have to collect and kind of send data over networks. But what are your thoughts in the industrial setting? Do you think that's going to also grow? Are you seeing it grow? Are you seeing it maybe in specific industries that makes more sense? And it's just in a, I would say, traditional plant, it's going to remain all uh, wired in. Yeah. So um, being the wireless guy for, for a while gives me a, a little bit of a yep. perspective on this, although it is a little dated. And I'm a little older since those years, but, but, but bottom line is I, I think wireless is, uh, is increasing. Now I do think there was a wane, right? So there was all these infrastructure types of wireless communications. That's primarily what I focused on. I did help launch some of our wireless products here at Phoenix contact. And, and that's a good technology to help get some additional data, but looking forward with some of the energy harvesting capabilities, some of the battery technologies that are out there, some of the newer technologies from a sensor manufacturer or sorry, from a sensor perspective, there was way more um, ability to get sensor data that was impossible to get before. Um, you know, it was particularly things like vibrations, temperatures, um, humidity, all these different types of just, just contact sensors. And all that data can be pulled in uh, in, in a great way to look at micro stops in, in a manufacturing facility to really figure out, you know, what your overall effectiveness is of a machine and operation uh, or a shift. And you could wire those things, but 
it's not going to be cost effective. It may not be feasible to wire each of those in. So I think wireless will definitely be on an uptick. Now, I don't know exactly what the, the premise of the question was. Are we looking more at that? Because there's another hotly debated topic of like Wi-Fi 6 versus 5G, private 5G. You know, is that going to take off? And and I think there's applicability for both. And I have my own opinions on where that'll go. But from an IoT perspective, which I would consider more of a sensor-related thing for for where we're going, it's not only that, but, but just in general, I would say there will definitely be... Um, a larger rise in different types of sensors that can be applied in a brownfield, kind of slap it on kind of sensor to collect data, to be able to make better decisions about your machine operations. I'm worried that we're going to introduce even more protocols that uh, automation engineers will have to maintain and take care of. But it, it's certainly an, an interesting debate. I, I think like that could be a, a whole discussion of its own, you know, of various protocols. It's interesting. I've, Personally, have seen you know fairly basic wireless applications where um, you have machinery that cannot be coupled with a, with a cable. You know, it's either rotating or it's it's moving parts. So it makes a lot of sense, right? To not have cabling, but uh, mm-hmm. like an entire plant that would be completely wireless could be an interesting. Yeah, I don't know if you'll find an entire plant that's completely wireless. Um, I mean, I, I, like I, I was a wireless guy for a long time. I wouldn't do critical control over wireless. I just wouldn't. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there, there's, it, there's nothing wrong with the wireless. It's just why, why let me maybe use wireless yeah. as a backup or redundancy mechanism. I've done that. Um, and then when you look at other protocols, Vlad is, uh, you know, so we're talking about wireless, but to go to the exact opposite direction, there's a huge change. It's very early on, but for SPE and APL, single pair ethernet and advanced physical layer that's coming out, that's really trending. And this is really geared towards replacing the traditional um, Ethernet cables in in industrial, and it gives you additional distance, um, potentially the same or slower speeds than you would get like with the gigabits or even 10 gigabit connections you get from an IT perspective. But you got to remember, if you have a Coriolis millimeter out in the middle of nowhere, you don't necessarily need gigabit Ethernet to that. What you need is a long range capability, maybe something going to an IS area, intrinsically safe area. You need to be able to potentially provide power and get data from that. And you want to do that over a common infrastructure, which could be this, this, um, this new topic of SPE and APL that's, that's coming out. What's the change, if you don't mind me asking? Uh, what's the, what are they trying to do? So, so it's single pair Ethernet. So you're actually doing um, communications over a pair of, of cables versus the, the standard Ethernet cable that has two pairs of, of cables in it. So it's less infrastructure. And then the way the modulation works over the cable is just fundamentally different to give you the longer speeds or sorry, the longer distances um, than the standard 100 meters. And then based on the, the distance that you go, there are varying speeds. But it's, uh, it's, it's designed to really be a common architecture, whether you're going a kilometer or you're going 10 feet, that in the future, you could have one type of cable that does everything. And it's not a new protocol. It's a new type of communication cable. So, um, you know, it's, 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 it's effectively a new way to communicate. So you could still do your standard protocols over the same infrastructure, but it's, it's a great way to, to really look at things towards the future. It's, and you can, in some cases, even use existing sensor cables to make it happen, although you do have to test it out. Um, it's probably not going to work real great with using existing sensor cables. They got to really work out, but it, it is, it is way more forgiving as a, as a technology than traditional ethernet. 
but provides the same capability where the people, the reason people love Ethernet is you stick an Ethernet switch there, you plug one cable in, and now I have four ports. Oh, I need five ports. So I take up a four port switch or five port switch, you put in a six port or eight port switch, and you're off to the races. So it offers that same type of expansion and capability because it works on the same protocol level, but the, the physical infrastructure of it is designed more for our industry. Right, Even that. down to the connectors themselves, because you know, if you've dealt with industrial enough, you know, you plug in the RJ45 connector, little plastic thing can pop off or whatever else. I mean, it works great, but it's, it's not, you can't tie it down and everything like that maybe as, as you'd want. Right. Dave? I think, so I think we brought up a bunch of good topics. So we had Rob uh, last week had a conversation around 5G and private 5G. I think Ira had some good comments. I, I know Scott McNeil has many more good comments being the industrial Wi-Fi guy. Um, I, I will say that if there is interest in putting together a theme around Wi-Fi 6 versus 5G versus private, I think it's, it's an interesting topic of conversation. Uh, please drop some comments below or let us know if that would be of interest. I think we know a number of people working on it, but certainly Vlad and I are no experts on it. If it would interest everyone, we would be, we would be happy to go down that rabbit hole uh, with, with everyone kind of as a first um, as a second kind of Wi-Fi uh, sensors, et cetera, in general, I have seen kind of an uptick in them, especially over the last five to 10 years, kind of to Ira's point, I don't think we're going to see a lot of critical control now or maybe in the near future. But what I have seen is a lot of extending sensors, adding additional sensors. At, at some point, it becomes cost prohibitive to run you know, power and whatever your communication uh, protocol or, or wires are to everything. And so within facilities, I see a lot of those, especially to Iris point, temperature, vibration, uh, humidity sensors. Uh, sometimes I see a bunch of pH kind of run over that. But beyond just the physical facility in and of itself, wireless is going to be the, the way that we go when we need to start measuring kind of more in distance. Right. So if we are outside of the facility and we need to go and measure a whole bunch of, you know, water pumps, we're going to go run wireless. If we can run wireless in whatever protocol five miles away, we probably aren't going to run five miles of cabling in order to get there for a whole bunch of for a whole bunch of different issues. Uh, Rob last week had a good uh, had a good concept, especially. So think about agriculture. Right. So. There are a lot of agriculture, IoT, IIoT solutions coming out. And even if you just need one sensor per acre, if you have 10,000 acres, you need 10,000 sensors. And we're not going to run wire, we're not going to run acres long wire uh, from one area to the other. So I think we are going Aren't to be going to need to power the sensors? expand batteries live. In every sensor? Huh, interesting. I would think PoE. I'm, yeah, I'm surprised, so, you know, in industrial, we don't have PoE as a almost a standard solution because I know some devices offer it, but it's not as widely spread as I would expect. But sorry, sorry, go on with the example. No, no, no. no so so I, I was going to say the, the last time I went to, to put together an application, it was probably four or five years ago, and they were having batteries that, you know, we, we don't have to change every year, right? So depending upon how the duration that you send uh, and the, the payload of the messages themselves, they have batteries that'll last five years, Vlad. 
Can you imagine just putting a sensor in place and not having to touch it for five years until you get a low battery warning? Like this is, this is what we were doing years ago. I'm sure the batteries are just as good. And if it becomes more critical than that, kind of to Ira's earlier point, then we put a solar panel and we put a larger battery in place. And then we probably never have to worry about it uh, until you get to the point that the sensor or, or some other critical failure happens. So if you look at them at, you know, kind of point solutions into a larger wireless gateway, kind of anything becomes possible. And then we look at kind of retrofitting a bunch of other larger facilities without having to run miles. And even if it's just POE, you, you look at, not having to run miles of what POE costs or getting them installed or putting people up there. You, you go and you set a sensor on an I-beam, right? And to, you go, you set a sensor on an I-beam, you, you attach it, it pulls back into your wireless gateway, and now you have that piece of information compared to how many scissor lifts would we need in order to run POE uh, to that point in the rafters. So, so Vlad, I mean, just to add to that, so I, I, it's way early, way early in it, but you know, the whole SPE and APL topic would be more of your type of thing, what you're talking about, mm-hmm. where you could provide data and power, because there's lots of working groups towards adding the power over SPE. So it could be something, and it's, it's lower, lower weight, lower cost, everything, but I agree. I mean, there, there are some things that are just prohibitive to, to, to running wires, so... Yeah, my, my thought is just, Absolutely. I mean, wireless is great, but it, it seems like, the again, I'm not sure what type of sensors you would set up on each acre, but they have to be like really low power and they have to probably transmit once a day, if, if that to last uh, three to five years. But usually, again, in an industrial environment, it's just not going to be enough to, uh, to have a battery in place. But that's just, you know, my experience. But if you're replacing the guy in the truck scenario when you're in a water application or whatever else, you may only get that reading once every three months. So if you can get it once a day, that gives you way more accuracy. So even if you did limit it to just that, but yeah, lots of opportunities, lots of things going on. And then, you know, you know, tying that to, to IOT, you know, there, there are some of these things, whether you're an ag or you're water or whatever else, you know, so, so a reason you'd want to do that is compliance in a big, in a lot of cases, because you may need to monitor things and take it and put it someplace and have it be auditable by some regulation, regulated body and having that be done um, in some, some automated type of way is hugely beneficial versus having that chart recording on the wall that then you have to file and maintain and all these other things. So, so there is, there is some advantages and even tying that into IOT. Yeah, I've certainly seen a lot of that in in food um, production because, again, the FDA is heavily regulated. And, again, to the initial point Mm -hmm. of we've always done things like, yes, we've collected data and printed out an Excel spreadsheet, but now we can actually tie it all in a much better solution where, again, that data is stored in the cloud, easily accessible. You know, there's a backlog for however many years, and it's not prohibitive of the cabinet that sits in the corner where we have a a physical trace for every single batch that we've run. So, so I think there, there's a number of advantages. But Ira, I want to I want to go back to the topic of data. So I think again, you know, our initial I would say definition of IoT has to do a lot with the availability and the ability to process and synthesize data. I'm wondering, you know, are you seeing core technologies? Are you seeing interesting things that are coming out around data? Are you seeing customers utilizing it maybe in a different way than, again, storing it and then looking at the 
certain specific efficiencies? Like, what are your thoughts around data and the advancements that are made in that space? Yeah, I mean, I, I've definitely seen some some core. So first of all, I'm a big believer in getting data to a common place and then moving that data somewhere else. Now, that somewhere else could be a variety of different things or whatever makes sense for the user. It could be a historian. So you're archiving it for the future, but that's different than the storage or the, this aggregator place. So there's a common place where everything has a common model. So you can then pull data from, and it's important to have that because then, you know, as the, the, um, the business people or the marketing people want to know how things are being produced or the the procurement people want to know where we are in materials or, or whatever, whatever's going on, they kind of have one common data set that's real time that's there that you, then you can pull from. And then you have this historian, which you're typically going to have to, to record things. And then people can look at the different data models as, as they, as they see fit. And, uh, you can definitely look at trends of data, like I mentioned over time with the football analogy and other types of things to, to make things better. But you can look at things uh, at a more granular pace, and, and it could even come down to the operator of, well, maybe they're looking at it and saying, okay, well, you know, I noticed that, you know, I, I, or, or maybe a, a, a shift is, is a better way to look at it. But if you're looking at a machine running and you notice that every whatever period of time, there is a delay for 30 minutes for that machine to turn on because someone had to manually go somewhere else to get the material to bring it over. You know, that seems like a logical thing that you could see, but if you have a field of, of operators all operating at the same time, you may not see that green light, red light, but through the series of data evaluation, you could see that maybe the machine that's further away from the material is operating at a lower efficiency than the one that's operating closer to the material. And that maybe would incentivize you almost immediately to move the material closer to that machine or provide maybe even another employee to help move the material to that machine so then it doesn't stop. And that's those micro stops or, or small changes that can happen in operations almost instantly to provide um, better operations. And you could argue, is that IoT or is that SCADA, whatever it is? And yeah, maybe there's a debate there, but those quicker hit types of things are very real on, on a lot of factory floors. Let me, I guess, piggyback on that same thought and ask you the question of what do you think are the main challenges from analyzing that data, right? Because in my mind, you would have a, like, I guess like the first challenge would be to actually implement the solution, right? So now you have data that's in this data lake and now different departments, let's say, want a solution to be able to see what's important to them. But then you also need some kind of an analyst or maybe someone who understands production, who truly knows the process to be able to optimize as you've given the example of, you know, operators using your machine. So you need someone who, understands that really well in order to make the decision of hey like let's try one of these three things and then look at the data again what kind of an impact that's going to make on the production let's say in the coming week month uh, or even hours so what like do you think it's a technical challenge from like the engineering team do you think it's a process challenge from whoever's analyzing that data do you think it's an analyst that you need someone who wants to like crunch that data and synthesize it what are your your thoughts around that so, so I have some strong thoughts around this, and and I don't know if they're popular or not. So okay. we'll create okay. we'll create controversy on your uh, your podcast here. So how how Good. about that? It'll get Solus PLC going through the roof now. Sure. <laughs> um, but um, you know, when you look at this, uh, you can certainly do it yourself, right? And and and, and there, there are going to be people that can do it, and 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 you can. You can really bring people up and you have to understand the operations because you have to be able to, to look at the data, know what to look for, look at, you know, put it in an Excel spreadsheet, whatever it is, however you're going to model it, 
model it and figure the things out. That's possible. Now you should get more analytical tools and there's lots of tools out there, um, but you need to look at it. There are baked in solutions. So if you look at more from an IOT perspective, there are lots of systems out there that can do some of this evaluation to provide you these little, maybe green light, yellow light, red light for a specific set of criteria. The, the problem there is, and, and don't get me wrong, there are awesome solutions, but the, pro- the problem there is if you really want to look wide and really dig deep on the topic, they're not going to do everything for you. You're not going to be Tesla tomorrow because you, you bought a product off the shelf and you integrated it. It's a starting point. And I think it's a really important part of the story, but it's a starting point and it can always be there, but it's a starting point to give you how this particular operation is going. Now, if you're a facility and you're going to do a complete digital transformation and really look at how everything's going, that's when you either need to employ your own data scientist or you need to look at what I consider a new breed of integrator. So when you look at industrial applications, I believe there are uh, there's more of the um, instrument integrator or the, the system integrator that's going to look at the instrumentation side. And, and there are varying degrees of this. They'll know exactly the type of instrument way beyond what I would ever know and what type of thing you need for that type of thing to get that particular variable you know, or flow or whatever it is. They're going to do that. And then you have the control systems engineer that can integrate all that together to make it work in a PLC. And then I guess there's a third type of not integrator, we call them IT, right? That deals with all the business systems and everything up here. And there's some connection there to make sure ERP and everything else is satisfied. But, but, but there's this area in between, particularly with data. And I believe there's a new breed of integrator that's developing because it's not an IT guy because you really have to have OT knowledge. But it's not, an, it's not just an OT guy because you have to know how data works and how it flows and maybe some of these analytical pieces and how to move data around. So it's, it's not an OT guy. It's really this ITOT guy. And it's, it's a new type of integrator, a new type of service, a new type of area that's emerging, in my opinion, in the industry, which is, is really this IIoT integrator. And it's people that really specialize in this because it's, it's not just programming a PLC. And it's not just networking and security. It's a blend. And, and quite frankly, in a lot of cases, you're a facilitator because you're going to have to work with both camps to figure out where data needs to go, how it goes, and these kind of things. So I think there's easy steps along the way of you can get baked in solutions. But I, it, when you really go full scale, which where I think the future of manufacturing is going, is there is this new type of integrator that's forming. That's a, I, I would say like that's a less controversial of a thought than, you know, I expected initially because I, I guess from what I've seen with many of my customers, at least, is that there is a focus on technology, right? But I think like that last component, which is, again, synthesizing the information that you need to truly change an operation is really difficult, right? Like that's a, that's almost like a huge step that is perceived as a small step in the process. And a lot of times... I would say, as you've been saying, that the transcendence of knowledge is from like IT, OT, but I would also throw in like the process side is very difficult to find. And I think it's also heavily dependent on almost like the culture of the plant. And I, if I want to use like that word and yeah. the willingness to like, we're going to truly like actually find these problems in this data, because whether we want it or not, I think no system is perfect and it's not going to... Again, there's obviously these like green light, red light situations, but even I think like getting to that mm-hmm. point is very difficult, right? Like it's mm-hmm. maybe we're understanding the challenges to set it up so that it, it is that simple. But until you get there, it's it, it's a it's a bumpy road, I guess, so to speak, in in yeah. my experience at least. 
Yeah, and and and, and, and oh, I was just going to say. I mean, I agree. Sorry, and and then I'll stop. But but it's because it's not just that piece there. It's the it's the culture shift of the of the company and and really understanding and wanting to do it. If you want to do the complete thing, you know, not just take on the one individual project. So sorry, Dave. No, 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 absolutely. I was going to agree. So uh, kind of that process data um, convergence, as you call it, I call it like contextualization, right? So I have a number of clients. Um, Some people go in understanding their process and either building or deploying a solution that works for their process. And I've got other clients who have deployed a, they've deployed a solution because they believed it was going to work for them. And then they just have kind of a slew of data because they wanted to collect everything. And I would say 40% of the people I talk to, when you ask them what they want to collect, the answer is everything because storage is cheap, right? And every time you, you hear that, you know that you've got work to do because they don't understand that the context, right? And so you get maybe a bunch of canned reports and the canned reports are maybe not useless, but they're not helpful because contextually, the information that they're overlaying together doesn't make any sense in the grand scheme of things. And you've, and so you have to go in to understand the, the context of what you're doing. And I would say context is maybe the most important, but the hardest part of any project that, that we see. You know, I have seen so many, call it industry 4.0 or digital transformation or IIoT projects fail because we don't go in understanding the root cause of the issue and we don't go in understanding what context we need in order to provide a data solution that will successfully help us deploy. And I, to kind of to Ira's point, I don't necessarily know if I would call that person kind of a, a new breed of integrator. I generally see a lot of it being kind of like product specialists or solution specialists kind of in conjunction with a process specialist at a facility is it possible that someone could go in and learn a process well enough from scratch to then by themselves put context to kind of all of the data solutions? Absolutely. It's just one going to take a very long time and two be very expensive. So if an end user can provide a product or a process specialist and they can work together with someone, then you could get to the point of potentially deploying a a data scientist. If your goal is to kind of Go collect everything, give a bunch of data to a data scientist, and then expect them to, to do some sort of voodoo magic and churn out the solution to all of your problems. You're almost certainly going to be sorely disappointed because that, that isn't the world that we currently live in. Uh, but no, w- with that, I think that, that's a great topic. I know Vlad has like a million more questions for you, Ira, but we actually have to thank some people uh, from Phoenix Contact. So. Vlad, if you can play the the sound and do the the best Vanna White of the PLC next, please. Absolutely. So as I said, we're very happy uh, that Phoenix Contact is sponsoring uh, this theme. And we're talking about the PLC Next Edge Gateway as a state-of-the-art IIoT and edge computing solution designed for data collection in the most demanding environments. Whether you have a small machine or an entire manufacturing floor, the PLC Next Edge Gateway leverages its advanced industrial design and programming openness to collect data from any device or sensor and send it directly to the cloud services of your choice. As they say, any data, any cloud. Um, you, you guys saw Vlad uh, pick that up. 
Uh, what we're going to tease at some point in the future, Vlad will have a follow on PLC next course. Uh, but, but Ira, you are wearing the PLC next, uh, polo. Do you have any additional thoughts or comments of, of what we should uh, talk about on the PLC next right now? Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a great platform. Um, and, uh, you know, it really does speak to the openness, you know, and providing the ability to not only do standard PLC control, but provide openness so we can expand and, and do things maybe in a unique and different way. Um, you know, I, I like to use the, the, the idea of, well, hey, you know, yes, it, it's PLC plus something else where you need PLC plus uh, HTML5 visualization so it can work on, you know, a phone or you want it to integrate some open source library uh, or uh, I've seen OEMs that maybe have two different types of machines. You can write your, maybe your, uh, your evaluation code in, in C or MATLAB and you can do an evaluation, but your standard rotary or conveyor application is the same. So you can combine six of the standard PLC operations like ladder or whatever else with high level language for detailed evaluations, but not make it complex from an OEM perspective. So it provides a whole host of opportunities. And if you want to know more, reach out. And since it runs oh, Linux, there's also a, a very easy way to install a lot of different applications. I know that PLC Next has their <laughs> own uh, like marketplace where you can download apps, but you can also just directly pull from any like, GitHub libraries or otherwise. And so it's fairly extensive from that standpoint. World is your oyster, as we like to say. And that's, you know, like the next... I know we talked a little bit about open platforms, Ira. I'm curious to, again, like hear your thoughts on where do you think the industry is going? Uh, I know that in software, traditionally, almost everything is, well, almost everything, I think I, I put that in maybe like in parentheses, um, but a lot of the projects nowadays that we see are open source and you can almost like download the entire software package, run it however you want. And then, you know, there's a paid component maybe on the enterprise side. Do you see a similar, like, do you see industrial manufacturing going that route? Do you see, I would say, all the thousand proprietary protocols remain in place? Or do you see that becoming a single standard? Like, what are your thoughts from, again, I would say, from an OEM standpoint, but also how is the overall relationship maybe between OEMs? Is, is there a thought of working towards like a single uh, like protocol or a standard way of protocols, or is it more of a, again, like divisive approach on things? Yeah, I wish I would say, I wish I could say that I, I believe that there's going to be one protocol to rule them all, but I think we've been living in protocol world or protocol war worlds for, for quite some time, all the way yep. back to the bus, bus times. I mean, Phoenix contact had its own, bus system. I don't know if you knew that. We developed Interbus way back in the 80s, and it's used in some manufacturing plants today. Um, sure. It was out there competing against DeviceNet and Profi bus and these kinds of things. Um, but, uh, but no, I don't see there being one common um, um, you know, protocol to, to kind of roll them all. But when you look at open automation, I think that is something that is key towards the future. And, and when I say open automation, really what I'm talking about is de the decoupling of hardware and software. So, uh, you know, it's the idea of uh, you, can, you can have a software runtime and you can run it on various hardware platforms and you can get similar or the same type of operation. So you're not beholden to a single manufacturer. And I think, I believe that for a long time, but you look at today's supply chain challenges, which we're facing just like everybody else, and it's becoming paramount. Like how great would it be if you could 
take whatever um, control system you use today, just use that runtime and install it on somebody else's hardware because you can actually get this hardware and you can't get that hardware. You could still keep your machine running. You may have to do some modifications to keep it going because of mapping or whatever else, but still your core logic is there. Today, there's nothing available because you're locked inside of a single box and you have to get the hardware and the software from a single company. So particularly looking at hyperscale projects, this is definitely a, a way of thinking, um, or project or, or industries where um, there is a lot of uh, very sluggish growth. And a clear example of that, and, and I'll hopefully keep this quick, but you look at um, the Open Process Automation Initiative. If you don't know what that is, um, there was a technology project that was done um, a couple of years ago where ExxonMobil actually hired Lockheed Martin to basically do a technology project to see if they could replace a DCS system with open source hardware and open source software. And the idea was that uh, they were locked, they were tired of being locked into a single vendor solution that was top to bottom and dependent on wherever they go and whatever development cycle they have and whatever advancements they make in their system. So why can't we decouple the hardware and the software? And they proved it out. And, um, and of course, Phoenix Contact was in, involved in some of this from a hardware perspective. Um, there's a, it's actually evolved to the Open Group, which is actually a foundation that actually runs this now. Um, and there's the um, Open Process Automation. Um, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an ongoing initiative. It's, uh, it was actually just talked about last week, a lot at the ARC Forum that was down in Florida. And there's a, uh, a, a, core, a coalition of, of people um, called COPA that are really getting together to develop one common system for people to deploy. And this is actually being deployed in multiple facilities around the world, BASF, ExxonMobil, Citgo, big facilities that are using this in test beds. It's not production, but using in test beds today, using open source software or at least open software. They're using different types of hardware to do DCS control of an operation. So it's, it's kind of a forward looking of where I think things will go in the future. Um, but uh, it's, it's just the idea. Take Codasys, for example. It's one of my biggest competitors from a runtime perspective. But wouldn't it be nice if you could just run Codasys on any piece of hardware and, and, and do the operations you need? Um, you know, and that's one of the advantages of PLC Next is we have our own runtime. We have our own functionality. But if you really have everything built in Codasys already, you can remove our runtime and replace it with Codasys because we truly believe in openness. Um, and, I, and, I, and I think this is where things are going. Um, not everything will go this way particularly small manufacturers, there may not be a need, but any type of scale or anytime you need to pivot, it gives you the opportunity to do that. Um, it's similar to a computer. You can have lots of computer hard pieces of hardware that all run Windows. It's an interesting thought. You know, I obviously like I have conflicting thoughts on both and I could see advantages kind of like a, a, of both chains of thinking. In my mind, at least, you know, when I'm using, let's say, PLC Next, I see there to be an advantage of using PLC Next Engineer versus Codasys, right? Because in my mind, it's much more coupled between the software and the hardware. And those who develop the software have hopefully taken the time to truly understand the architecture of the platform. And it's obviously there's intrinsic benefits that may not be kind of visible in every application, but it's in my mind probably going to run faster, it's going to run better, it's going to be like smoother. So obviously it's it's great to have a platform that can be ordered to anything, but it's the same argument that you would have, you know, Mac versus PC. Like sure, Mac computers are a lot more expensive. The software is proprietary, even though you can have like virtual machines, but that's a, a separate debate. But ultimately 
And again, there's also the new chips that are now, you know, manufactured by Intel. So there, there's some gray areas to be discussed there. But ultimately, it's always been more performant from like the OS standpoint that runs on their own hardware versus, you know, just being ported as a VM to a, a standalone uh, PC. So I, I could see, you know, the, the advantages of both. I'm not sure exactly where the industry is going to go. Uh, yeah. My question would be like, how do you, if you're, let's say, a hardware manufacturer, at that point, it becomes a question of how do you compete, right? If there's a maybe a way to just purchase a much cheaper PC. But it, again, there, there's a lot of like gray areas too, right? Because even a cheaper PC doesn't necessarily mean it's the same performance, but right. it's, so, uh, it's interesting. So as a hardware manufacturer that has a PLC, that has its own runtime, the way we present it is PLC next first. It's exactly what you said, Vlad. You know, it is going to perform better. It is going to be tested out. It is going to work without a shadow of a doubt. And it's going to be 100% supported by us. It is the preferred solution. But if you already have it done and you can't get whatever piece of hardware you already had used this on and you need to get something out the door, it provides an option. Um, and, and that's the other piece of it. And, and it's a sense of not being locked. So if you don't, if, if, if you need to do it in this other way, for whatever reason that you enter here, and, and I'll tell you, there are some hyperscale projects that do need that because their biggest concern is not the performance. It's just sheer availability. You know, it's, it's something that, that just, it's there. So it's, it's a different way of thinking about it. And I get it. It's, it's, it's new, but, um, it's, uh, I, I think, uh, the, the flexibility I I've become a Mac guy. I think I, I bought one. You know, I'm still trying to figure it all out. I've been a PC guy forever. So I'm still, still learning, learning through all that whole thing. So, gotcha. Dave, what are your thoughts on open source? I, I think that if we can get to some more open source, that we as an industry will be better for all of the reasons that Ira presented in the very beginning of taking a software engineer and saying, hey, go try to figure out to turn on some lights to be a ladder logic versus go do it in Python, right? So if we can get to some sort of open source or, or closer to open source, the, the open automation, as Ira talked about, I think that we're going to be better as a community. I think with supply chain shortages and all of the other issues that we've found, as well as kind of lack of talent and potentially new talent coming into manufacturing uh, as manufacturing first solutions, uh, we are going to have to do something because what we've done for the last 40, 50, 60, 70 years is not going to work if we have to go and build a whole bunch of new facilities, retrofit a whole bunch of new facilities into the future. So I think we can all hope that that's what it is to, to your uh, original kind of question as to uh, are we going to get to one protocol? Vlad, I think we can all hope that we get to one protocol at some point in the future. I'm not sure it's going to happen in any of our lifetimes um, is, is kind of uh, where I am at uh, w with that. But, uh, but no, no, I, I appreciate that. I, I think that that's a very interesting take on the future. Um, a couple more questions uh, for you. And I know you, you started by talking a lot about your career. Can you give us uh, some career advice maybe for someone early or mid career? Is your, is the path that you took a path that you would suggest for people or would you suggest something else? Yeah. I mean, I, I think, so I, I wouldn't limit yourself, you know, so I'm, I mean, of course, when you're looking at career advice, I'll, I'll use my, my own career. So I'm, like I said, degree engineer, graduated engineering, you know, vision doing embedded systems engineering. I love the code, you know, geek, geek at heart. 
um, sales guy by trade, I guess. I don't know. But, um, but absolutely. I mean, just follow where you want to go or maybe where the wind blows and don't be afraid of that sales position or marketing position, even if you are an engineer, because there's a lot of opportunity there. Um, I'm not saying you should definitely do that. Certainly, if you want to do engineering, there's, there's, we, we, we have lots of them at Phoenix and I deal with them every day. But I also have a team of engineers that do marketing and that do sales. And it is certainly a, um, a, a great career path. And don't think that you're not going to use your engineering skills. Um, I think it probably depends a little bit on the company that you're joining. But especially in my early career, I use my engineering skills all the time. Now it's primarily personnel and, you know, a lot of these kind of things just because of where I am. But, you know, I, I can tell you without a shadow of a doubt, you know, an awesome project that I did in New York where I literally networked a bunch of rail heaters across the, the, uh, the tracks um, and, and helped in the initial design of that to, all the way to, you know, where, where it ultimately became to, to, to make systems work. So you can certainly use your engineering skills, um, even in a sales and marketing career. Absolutely. And then I, I will add to that because I didn't have the chance to add earlier. Most of the time, if you're looking at a product specialist or an application engineering role, those do have some not insignificant degrees of technical requirements to them. There, there is some sales, there is some marketing uh, when it comes to that, but a lot of it becomes you being the kind of technical expert that the rest of the teams can go draw upon. So if you're looking at an opportunity to go talk to people and solve problems and you want to develop some customer relationship as well as technical abilities, uh, I, I would certainly suggest kind of going to uh, take a look at those as an option uh, when we look at that. Um, and then uh, Ira, I know you've got a, a great uh, great book recommendation. So, uh, so what would you recommend uh, for folks if they're looking for a good read? So I, I don't know if it's a great book recommendation, but it's a book that I really like. And, uh, and, and it's something that has been really impactful on my life. Um, I, I got a lot going on just like everybody else, right? And sometimes sorting through what the most important things are and where I should be focusing is a hard thing to do. So I'm a big productivity guy. I like to really focus on you know, breaking through the noise and, and moving the ball forward. And there's a great book, and maybe this is just a little bit of my personality, but it's called The Subtle Art of Not Giving an F. And it is substitute F with the word, right? And that's the name of the book. It's by Mark Manson. And I, it's a fantastic book. It's a productivity book. And it really looks at don't focus on the small stuff, focus on the things that are really going to move you forward. And, uh, and, and it's really about not caring about the other things because that's essentially what you're doing. The definition of focus is not focusing on certain things. So that's been something that's been really important mm -hmm. for me. And I have a variety of others that I could talk about, but but that's one to me that has probably been um, the most impactful. I'm a big getting things done guy. Um, and uh, I don't know if you're familiar with that philosophy and that process. There's a, there's a whole ecosystem around that of, of making sure you get things out of your head, get it on lists, check it off. I keep a zero inbox, you know, these kind of things. And, and I do that through really these types of processes. And it's, it's really helped me, it's honestly helped me get to where I am today. Zero inbox. I love that. We will, we will certainly have to have you back on to one talk, not only more about some of those other focus books, but also about uh, getting things done and lists and uh, and all of those things. I think it'll just be Ira and Dave geek out and Vlad just kind of looks at us with a with a glazed over face as uh, uh, as he considers all of the things that he has to get done. 
I'll give you a name. So there's there's a there's a guy by the name of Steve McClatchy. He he's he's done a number of uh, seminars and things for Phoenix Contact, but he's also does a lot with Fortune 10, Fortune 100, Fortune 1000 companies. Great public speaker. I think he holds some online things now. Awesome productivity, awesome awesome just business skills and things. Check him out. He has a book to side, but he's just a fantastic presenter and a fantastic knowledge source on the topic as well. On uh, productivity. No, I, I love productivity. That. Productivity. Yep. <clears throat> well, we all know what Dave and Vlad are going to talk about for the next three hours after we get <laughs> off of this. But we'll, we'll move past productivity and focus for just a moment to, uh, to finish up with Ira. Um, Ira, so, so who should reach out to you? You know, who do you want to talk to? What sort of products do you want to talk about? Are you guys hiring? W- what does that look like on your side? Oh, we're hiring. So if, uh, you know, you're looking for a position, we got, we got lots of positions really across the country from our corporate headquarters in, in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania to really all across the country. We're going through a massive growth right now. Um, I think we have close to 50, 60 openings. We have a lot of openings. What kind um, of positions, if you don't mind sharing? Prim- a lot of different types of sales positions, product specialists or, or business development positions in local areas. Um, the, those kinds of things really, really across the country, focusing in on, um, particular topics, um, you know, power, shop floor productivity, which is like our tooling and marking, um, and cabling all different types of topics, but we have a lot of openings. So, and if you have questions about them, you can check out our website. There's a careers page on our website. Um, I'm pretty active on social media as well. You can feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn. Um, be happy to tell you anything about any of the positions that I know or get you in contact with people that, that do, do know. Um, and then other people to reach out, look, I mean, of course, if you have anything on PLC next or automation that you need help with also reach out, you can email me isharp at phoenixcontact.com or again on uh, social, particularly here on LinkedIn. I'm glad to help you out. And then generally too, I'm i I'm a co-host, uh, with Yen Pringle, of the Industry 4.0 Club uh, weekly. We hold the Future of Manufacturing Room on Clubhouse as well as do some LinkedIn Live events. So we're always talking about mm-hmm. all, all different types of things looking forward in the future of automation, not just Phoenix Contact, but just as a market as a whole. So I, I love just having general conversations just like we did here today and, uh, and, and looking at the market where it's going. And I believe I'm always right not always right, but, uh, you know, uh, just, just understanding where things are going and having those conversations. I love to learn as much as I talk about the, where I see things are going. What's the schedule, Ira, if you don't mind sharing with us for Industry 4.0 Club? Yeah, it's, it's, it's going to change probably a little bit over the summer here because okay. uh, we, hold, we hold rooms every day, so Monday through Thursday. And uh, they're typically uh, 12.30 to 1.30 Eastern on Clubhouse. And if you look at the Industry 4.0 Club on LinkedIn, you can find us there as well as the schedule. And we also have a website, industry4.0club.com. Um, but, uh, but yeah, and, and there's different topics of, of for each one, of the, each one of the days. Awesome. That's amazing. Uh, thank you, Ira. So we will have Ira's contact information. Well, you guys, if you're watching this live, can see Ira's contact information or can, uh, can check out um, LinkedIn to, uh, to catch Ira's uh, uh, contact information. Uh, we should have it in the show notes if you guys are listening and also want to check it out. It will all be on manufacturinghub.live. Again, the, the place that you guys can check out all of this information. But thank you, Ira. Thank you, everyone, for being here. Um, I will ask, Ira, I've learned that people subscribe and listen more if I ask them to listen and subscribe. This crazy correlation that, that I found over the last uh, few weeks 
So if you guys are listening on a podcast, please rate us five stars on Spotify and Audible and Apple Podcasts. Um, that, that helps for a bunch of different reasons. Please go subscribe, download the podcast. That helps us kind of move up the charts. You guys are already doing a fantastic job. You continue to listen to Vlad and I talk in and around our fantastic guests like Ira coming on. Um, if you haven't joined us on LinkedIn, Manufacturing Hub Network is where you can check out all of the stuff from all of our shows. Um, and go ahead and feel free to subscribe to the newsletter where we once a week send out an email reminder about an hour before we go live, reminding you guys that, uh, that we're going live. But no, thank you, Ira. Thank you, everyone. Um, until next week, we will check catch you guys soon. Thank you, Ira. Thank you, everyone. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it.